Let's get our Bibles open to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at the 11th chapter today. We'll spend most of our time in the first couple verses, and I like always like to kind of pre-like... Uh, Prepare, prepare uh, you guys for that so that when we, you know, 20 minutes down the road, we're still in verse two, you know, you're not like worried, like how is, how, how's this guy getting through the chapter? You know what I mean? Uh, so we'll spend a lot of our time right there in the first couple of verses, but we're going to look at the whole chapter today in a, in a message that I've entitled the world under righteous rule. And so with that, let's take our hearts uh, to the Lord. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for uh, meeting with us and ministering to us, God, and as always, it's our desire that you would just speak from your word, uh, God, that you work challenge and change in us, Lord, confirmation of things or exhortation in areas or how, whatever it is that you want to do, God, this is, we're here, Lord, because we want to hear from you and uh, we want to become Jesus more like you. And so to that end, we pray, please uh, work transformation and uh, just have your way in us and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, family, the curtain closed in chapter 10 with a decimation and devastation, the lopping of the boughs and the arrogant hearts being brought low. And if you remember right, the picture was of a great and mighty forest being leveled to the ground. Whether it be Judah, whether it be Assyria, God says in verse 33 of chapter 10, the haughty, notice, will be Humbled. A judgment was coming. Uh, Assyria would be essentially reduced to nothing as far as the world stage was concerned. And historically speaking, the Davidic dynasty was ready to draw to an end. But guys, there's a reason, uh, should you go to a jeweler and, and want to look at a diamond, that they display it against the backdrop of black velvet. And it's because it's against that black background that it shines the brightest. That's where the brilliance really comes to the forefront. That's where the radiance or the, the radiant contrast really stands out most clearly. And so it's against the the back, the black background of this devastation and destruction, the judgment of chapter 10, that the radiance of this prophecy shines forth in chapter 11. And out of the ashes, if you will, hope arises for the nation of Israel, in fact, uh, ultimately for all of humanity in the coming of the Messiah. And so to sort of set the stage in your mind's eye out of the barren wasteland of what was once a vast and expansive forest, we read in verse 1 of chapter 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Guys, how many of you realize that God is in the business of bringing hope both into and out of otherwise hopeless situations? right? He speaks light into darkness. He brings life out of what was once dead. And even so, God says, out of the Davidic dynasty that will be brought to nothing, reduced to peasantry, a rod will come forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. A couple of things that I want to speak to here. Number one, I want you to see if you're into taking notes or writing things down there out the side of uh, verse 1, you should just maybe make a note that God will always keep his word. You know, I, uh, I find myself, and I hope that it's acceptable to you. To be honest with you, I, it, it, 
I don't mean any disrespect in this, but it doesn't matter if it's not acceptable. I hope it's acceptable that I find myself on repeat a lot lately, but on the, at the, t- the risk of being redundant, I'm just going to say it again. You know, heaven and earth will pass away. Uh, people's perspectives will come and go. But God's word remains forever. That is, is true. You can take it to the bank. We read in Numbers chapter 23, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Ladies and gentlemen, those are what we refer to as rhetorical questions. What that means is that the answer is implied in the phrasing of the question itself. Of course he'll do it. If he speaks it, he'll make it good. He's going to keep his word. And it's in 2 Samuel. Again, if you're a note taker, margin etcher, you know, it's, it's there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There he is, King David. And God has given him rest from his enemies all around. And so he finds it in his heart to build God a house, a permanent dwelling. You know, he says, here I am. I'm the king of Israel. I'm dwelling in this beautiful home made of cedar and all. And where is God's ark? Where's the ark of God? It's out there in that ratty old tent. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds, you know, since the days of Moses. It's just looking torn. It's looking tattered. Man, I want to build God a house, you know, something glorious. And it's a beautiful story that you'd do well to read. But the short of it is that God tells him no. You see, David was a man of war. He had blood on his hands. And and God didn't want his temple, his dwelling, the place whereby people would come to approach him to be associated or identified with War, but he wanted his house to be associated or identifying with peace. And so God told David, No, you can't build the house. But he said, I'll tell you what, David, I'll build you a house. How many of you understand, again, that you cannot outgive God? You know, a quick show of hands there on that if you've discovered that to be true. You can't even find it in your heart to bless God, but that he won't bless you above and beyond anything you could ask or even think in return. We serve a good God. He said, you found it in your heart to build me a house. David, that's wonderful. Uh, the answer's no, but I'm going to build you a house, you see. And God told David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. Notice, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, David, I'm going to bring forth the Messiah, the one to rule and to reign forever from you. Wow, think about that. You know, perhaps you're thinking, well, that's neat and all, Pastor, but what's that have to do with this? I mean, the name in focus for us is Jesse, not David. Well, that's true, but Jesse was David's father, right? Uh, from Jesse came David, and from David would come the Messiah. And God is assuring his people of the fact that he keeps his word. That regardless of the devastation, the destruction, how hopeless things may seem, the fact that the Davidic dynasty would be brought essentially to nothing, that life and fruitfulness, hope would come forth from that place 
of humility. Listen, guys, you, you know your Bible history. You, you've read, I trust, the gospel of Matthew or, or, or Luke. Or, you know, and, and by the time Jesus was born, there was no man from the line of David on the throne in Israel. Uh, the Davidic dynasty had been reduced to peasantry. And they were about as far from royalty, at least seemingly, as you could get. But that's the second thing that I want you to see here. Not only that God keeps his word to you and me, if he's spoken it, he will make it good. He's not a man that he would lie or the son of man that he should repent. If he says it, he'll do it. You know, amen to that? But the second thing that we see is that he calls forth his people, raises them up from this place of humility. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the exception that God doesn't raise up a person from that place. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians? It's a familiar passage, but let's leave, put your finger in this place and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just make your way right over there, click your way right over there, whatever. I always feel weird saying that. Just click to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you know. Maybe it's not weird. But it feels weird after, you know, 20 years of saying turn, and then you realize people have phones, and so they just kind of click, you know. Uh, But anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me draw your attention to this 26th verse, where Paul says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to put to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Family, God will not share his glory with another. And so that he might sympathize and identify with us fully. What we're seeing here is that Jesus wouldn't come to the earth in royal procession with pomp, pageantry, regalia, and angelic escorts and all the rest. But he would come from a place of simplicity, a place of humility. Even here, in our present passage, had the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah... Uh, to refer to the line of David, it would have been completely appropriate and true. But in identifying with uh, Jesse, he doesn't claim the place of the who's who. I mean, that sounds like, wow, the Messiah is going to come from King David. Well, there's a, he's associated with the who's who. No, no, he doesn't do that. He associates in humility with the who's he, right? With Jesse. Much more humble, you see. And so the first thing that Isaiah reveals of the coming Messiah here in chapter 11 is that he will come from a place of humility. 
However, the second thing that he reveals is that he will also be empowered supernaturally. Look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. And the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Uh, The idea being that the Holy Spirit will guide him mentally, uh, intellectually, uh, that he will contain the moral ability to make right decisions judicially, okay? Now, you might pick up, if you're into these kinds of things, and you maybe was looking or counting or whatever the case may be as we were reading through verse 2, you might pick up on the fact that there are seven characteristics listed here. Now, does that mean that the Holy Spirit only has seven attributes or, or characteristics, as it were? No, not at all. What we're seeing, guys, seven in your Bible is the number, not of perfection. Some will say perfection. That's not exactly accurate. It's the number of completion, okay? The number of completion. And so what we're seeing here is that the Holy Spirit will be given to Jesus fully, uh, completely. He will be empowered without measure, you, you see. In other words, you and me, we are given the Holy Spirit in measure. Does that make sense? In other words, uh, none of us will operate in every gift of the Spirit without limit. Okay? Can you, that, that makes sense to you? Jesus, on the other hand, was given the Spirit without measure, okay? Meaning that he operated in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, in speaking of Jesus, said, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. In reference to this one, to Jesus, the Father loves the Son and has given all things. See, there's no limit to what God has. uh, God has not withheld a thing uh, from Jesus. He's given all things into his hand. And so the fullness of the Holy Spirit would be in and upon the life of Jesus. And by the way, uh, this is probably the reference, if you want to write it down or if it just make a mental note, it's probably the same reference in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5 as well. You'll read there that John saw before the throne of God seven uh, lamps of fire uh, burning, as it were, before the throne. Which, by the way, a little interesting side note, you might also just recognize or realize in your mind's eye that a menorah is also uh, seven lamps of fire. It is the single post, right, with the flame, and then three arms on either side. So it's uh, seven lamps of fire, and interesting, it's in the tabernacle before the, the, the Holy of Holies, right? Before the throne, as it were. And so, uh, but he says there that these seven lamps burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now again, what that means is that the fullness of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is before God. In other words, there's no lack in the Holy Spirit, okay? In other words, it's not like, well, God the Father, I mean, he's the real deal. The Holy Spirit's kind of on another level, not quite as full as, no, no, not at all. There's no lack in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, you see. And so we see here 
as we look at these things, guys, we should realize that not only are they the attributes, or should we say characteristics, that would be found in, in Jesus himself, but how many of you understand that if Jesus dwells in us, they should be evident in us as well? Okay. Now granted, we won't display them perfectly, completely, as did Jesus, but his light, his life should be seen in us. Now the first thing that Isaiah draws attention to is that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, it won't be a deceptive spirit, won't be the spirit of this world, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of man that leads or rules or rests upon him. It'll be the spirit of the Lord. Guys, somehow and in some way, when Jesus came into this world, the Bible teaches that he voluntarily laid aside, not his deity, he's always God, always has been, always will be, never a time when he was not. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, right? All things were made through him, without him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is always, has always been God, but he, so he laid aside not his deity, but the prerogatives of deity. Does that make sense? Again, he would sympathize and identify with you and me entirely. So what that means is that he chose to subject himself willingly yet fully, completely to the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. Perhaps you recall after he was baptized, we read that Jesus came up immediately from the water. By the way, Jesus was baptized. And so I just recommend you, if you haven't been, next week, right? And behold... The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, landing upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the Spirit was already dwelling within him, undoubtedly, obviously. But now the Spirit had come upon him, empowering him for service. And Isaiah is pointing out here that when he comes again, he will rule the earth in the power of the Spirit. Now as for you and me, we need to seek the Lord, guys, on the daily, yes, for the empowering of his Spirit, that we might serve him. We might lead lives that are well-pleasing to him. But he says here, the spirit of the Lord uh, shall rest upon him. Notice the spirit of wisdom and understanding. You know, when you read through the Gospels, when you study the life of Jesus, you see the spirit of wisdom just always in operation uh, in his life. You know, the religious leaders were always constantly trying to entrap him, trying to entangle him, as it were, hang him on the horns of a dilemma, uh, you know, a catch-22, no way out kind of scenario. But their schemes and efforts of entrapment were never a match for the wisdom of Jesus. In fact, one day Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees 
for always trying to outwit him rather than simply submitting to him. And he said to them, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. But check it out. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Wiser than Solomon. Here you guys are trying to outwit me. You're trying to, you know, entrap me. You're trying to, you know, ensnare me. When in reality, you should be in awe of me. You should be wanting to learn from me, you see. Paul told the Corinthians, we just read it, didn't we? That Jesus became for us wisdom from God. In other words, Jesus doesn't just have wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is wisdom. He is the embodiment of wisdom, you see. The spirit of wisdom is upon him. The spirit of understanding is upon him. Family, Jesus has more than an academic kind of knowledge of all things. He understands all things. He understands you perfectly. He's perfectly suited to be our great high priest, representing the Father to us, representing us before the Father. Isn't that the work? Wasn't that the work of the priest in ancient Israel? They would represent God to the people and they would represent the people to God. They were the go-between, the mediator. And what does the Bible tell us but that we have one mediator, right? There's one mediator between man and God and that's the man Christ Jesus. But guys, this is something that I find myself praying for on the regular. Guys, I need understanding Uh, on multiple levels. I mean, we could go down the list, be it having a clear sense of motive when someone is speaking to me or wanting something to be done for them or from me or whatever the case may be, or uh, appropriate compassion. I want understanding in a given uh, situation. But guys, the main thing for me I mean, like I said, all of the, we need, we need under, I need understanding. I mean, you could, what about in this? Yes. <laughs> what about in that? Yes. You know, I just, I need understanding. But in particular, concerning God's word, you know, that I handle it appropriately, that I expound on it, explain it accurately. It's in Luke 24, at least the passage that resonates for me and in me, when Jesus is there and he's speaking to his disciples concerning the things that had to happen to him. You know, how he had to suffer and how he had to die and he he had to rise again that he might fulfill the scripture, that he might pay the price for your sin and for mine. And then we read, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And that's what I pray and would encourage you to pray regularly. Lord, open my understanding that I might comprehend your word. You know, uh, that I might perceive it accurately. That I might respond to it appropriately. You see, understanding should lead to action, shouldn't it? If I understand it, then I should respond appropriately 
to it. My understanding should cause me to act in a certain direction, you see. He says here the, the spirit of counsel and might. Jesus has the wisdom, he has the understanding to be perfect in counsel. Isn't that glorious? I tell you what, and here's the thing that we see here, not only can he counsel you in what to do, he can empower you to do it. He's perfect in might. You know, some want to help you, they just, they don't have the power, they don't have the resources to do anything for you. Others may have the power in a given situation, they may have the resource, the ability, the capacity, you see, they just don't care. They just don't understand. Jesus has it all. He loves you, understands you, and somebody, praise God, he has the power to help you. The spirit of knowledge. Jesus knows everything. He knows your heart. Now, um, that can be good for you, or it could be bad for you, depending on where your heart's at. Uh, he knows the facts. People can snow me, they can fool me, they can make me see what they want me to see and all. But I tell you what, on the flip side of that, sometimes I make a, may make a decision that seems strange to others because I may know something that they don't, right? Or vice versa. And there's an element of trust that needs to be extended when we're in this place. You see, you know, your leader, your spiritual leader, whatever the case may be, there, there's something that seems, what's going on? It doesn't make sense. I'm doing the math. It's not adding up. I can't connect the dots with the pattern that's being portrayed in front of me. Well, there's a sense in which, listen, they may know something you don't know. Okay? Well, listen, so too with the Lord. He knows things we don't. He has all the facts. And so we shouldn't be surprised when sometimes he moves in a way that seems strange or counterintuitive to us. Uh, finally, in this verse, we see the fear of the Lord would be upon the Messiah. Uh, meaning there would be a reverential awe and respect for God that would keep him submitted to God. Listen, Jesus being God uh, was perfectly equal. Isn't that what Paul uh, tells us in, in, in Philippians? Perfectly equal to God in every way. Yet he willingly kept himself in that place of submission. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven. Sometimes I think we don't even stop to consider what he's saying when he says something like that. Think about that. Jesus, I mean, who else do you know that's ever said, well, I've come down from heaven? I mean, he's telling you something. I have come down from heaven. Wow. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said, I, look at this word, always do those things that please him. What an incredible thing to be able to say. I always, not generally, not mostly, not typically, I always do those things that please the Father. Jesus was never about his own will, his own thing. 
His heart was to please the Father. And these are the things that would characterize the life of Jesus. Now, God's goal for you and me, write it down, look it up later, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is to make us like Jesus, right? That we would lead our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would walk in wisdom, having understanding, encouraging others through His Word, growing in our knowledge of Him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, right? Leading lives well-pleasing to Him in the fear, you see, uh, of Him. Now, I should also say this. Uh, These characteristics, these things being, you know, the attributes or characteristics that describe the nature of the Spirit of the Lord, being the nature of Jesus, that should tell us something. That is, that when the Spirit of God is at work in a given place or scenario or situation, it should look like the nature and ministry of Jesus. Okay? And so, number one, Messiah would come from a place of humility. Number two, he would be gifted and empowered supernaturally. And then number three, we see that he would judge and will judge equitably, impartially, and righteously. Look at verse three. And his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of of his waist. I love the phrase uh, back in verse 3, if you're an underliner, a highlighter, whatever, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. This word delight is actually related, uh, believe it or not, to a, a sharp sense of smell that brings quick understanding. Um, think of walking into your house and your favorite dessert is baking in the oven, right? Or you step outside, and, and someone has just fired up the grill. They've just thrown that steak on. You know that smell that comes off the grill like as soon as the steak hits it, and you're like, wow. You know, there's just there's nothing like you understand instantly that something incredible is in the works. It joys you. It delights you. Well, you know what delighted Jesus? What joyed Jesus? The fear of the Lord. It brought him great joy knowing that he was leading his life within the boundaries of the Father's will for his life. Ladies and gentlemen, there is great peace in the fear of the Lord. You know, when you're doing those things that are pleasing to God. When you know you're doing those things that are pleasing to God, it will delight your soul. It will shroud your heart with peace. 
One day, Jesus told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know how you, we just kind of talked about steak and dessert and all of that. Uh, you know how you enjoy a good meal? You know, uh, it not only supplies life to you, but again, it's just, it's a delight uh, to you. Well, Jesus is saying, that's how God's will is for me. It's life to me. Uh, It's a delight to me. I I love being about my father's business. And don't miss the next line. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. This is where we tend to fail, isn't it? I mean, often. Uh, We make snap decisions based upon what little we've seen or heard. I was speaking with someone just last week about this phrase they use, you know, as they're swearing someone in the court of law, you know, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You guys realize it's common for people to offer up a bit of truth, uh, but they'll leave out the details that can sway a decision in a certain direction if it's not beneficial to them, you know what I mean? Like, well, I'm telling you the truth. Yeah, but are you telling me the whole truth? That that which brings the context into correct perspective. They don't share the whole truth. We don't see things properly, as it were. But guys, things aren't always what they appear to be, are they? Jesus doesn't judge on the basis of how things look. Okay? Nor, notice this, decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge. This takes us back, doesn't it, to the fact that the spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and the fear of the Lord rests upon him. He searches the heart. God says, don't, you remember when, matter of fact, it was when he was uh, selecting David to be the king. Don't look at his outward appearance because God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks to the outward appearance. God searches the, the what? The heart. He knows. And you'll see it in in the the gospels when the, you know, it would say Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them or whatever for he knew what was in the heart of man. He, He understands and he always does the right thing. And the idea here when it says that he'll judge the poor and and all righteously is that if the poor and the meek are treated fairly, why are they brought into this forefront? Well, because in Isaiah's day when this was written, they were the ones that were being taken advantage of most readily. And so if the ones that are being taken advantage of will get a fair shake, right, will be judged righteously, then everyone will be judged righteously, you see. And we note that when it comes to dealing with the wicked, uh, there in verse, what, four, Jesus won't engage in some long, drawn-out battle. He'll just speak the word, and the wicked will be slain. Guys, you, you do know, right, that the one who authors life, the one who gives life, also has the power. They can take the life just as easily. And so when Jesus returns to the earth, how many of you have in your mind's eye envisioned the battle of Armageddon? You know, when the, 
when the heavens roll back like a scroll and the earth come, pardon me, the Lord comes to the earth riding on a horse and the armies, the host, there you are in fine linen. And man, I don't know if you're like spurring your horse, if you're slapping your horse, if you're just riding your horse and there we are and the hosts of heaven are coming and you're seeing this massive battle and missiles flying and pow, they're being deflected and all the stuff and all of the, it probably won't be like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, the heavens will roll back and we'll come in. I mean, all that's good and glorious, but it's not going to be this long, drawn-out, like, close call, Lord of the Rings-type epic battle. Okay? Jesus is just going to speak the word. You know? It'll be over in however long it takes Jesus to say the word. No epic fight scene. You might just... Write it down so you can read it later. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. You'll see how Jesus will deal with the situation and how he will destroy the Antichrist, even just with the breath from his mouth. Everything Jesus does will be touched, motivated, influenced, and impacted by righteousness and faithfulness. He's consistent, non-wavering in his standard of judgment. You know, uh, very few times I've ever had to stand before a judge, but any time I ever have, I've always hoped it was they were having a good day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, but with Jesus, you don't got to worry about that. He's faithful, never changing, right? Righteous and true, faithful. Verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. Uh, the way that we're seeing here is the picture of the millennial reign. This is what it will be like. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. The weaned child put his hand in the viper's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. You know, many people... Uh, speak, or maybe you've seen paintings, or you know you've heard of the lion dwelling with the lamb and all. Uh, that's not actually what the Bible says. I mean, it, it's true by default, but you just read what the Bible says. It's the wolf will dwell with the lamb. I don't know why. I just wanted to point that out for you. But the idea is that when Jesus rules the earth, the curse of sin essentially, family, will be removed. Now, not entirely, not completely in that death will still occur during the millennial kingdom and we'll read later on that should a man die at 100 years old, it'll be like a tragic, like the birth of, a, of the death of an infant or something. So, you know, the longevity of life will be restored but having said that, death won't be removed until the end of the millennial reign. You, you see that in Revelation chapter 12 when death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, but there will be peace, tranquility, unmatched in human history during this time outside of the time prior to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. He says there won't be the tension of predator and prey in the animal kingdom or even between man and animals. There's no fear 
You know, and the Bible tells us in Romans chapter eight that nature is actually longing, eagerly awaiting this deliverance from the bondage of corruption that it's been subjected to. This transformation that will come when the Messiah reigns. You know, after the flood, we learn that God placed the dread of man in the heart of the animals, right? Because he told Noah the animals would be for food for you and this and that. Well, it wouldn't have been really fair if the animals were all just kind of nosing up to him and he got hungry. You know, there it is. So, so he put the dread of man in the heart of the animals. But in the millennial kingdom, guys, all that's going to be uh, reversed. Messiah will reverse that. And people won't have to worry about their children straying too far. They won't keep them tethered on that little leash thing, you know, that you see them uh, with in amusement parks or at Walmart or whatever the case may be. There's no fear, not even between the, the animal kingdom and there's no venomous uh, vipers will be, you know, praying or rep, you know, whatever. No one's praying on them. How is this possible? Well, we see it in verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that line. I just love that. Completely. Entirely. And not just intellectually, uh, but the knowledge of the Lord. We're talking relationally here. Okay? The knowledge of Jesus Christ will cover the earth. Everyone will live according to the principles of his word. And again, just you might write it down so you can read it in a little while. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34. There won't be a need for evangelism because the world will know Jesus Christ. And let me just say... Guys, that's what it's all about, knowing Jesus Christ. Uh, If to you, God is just some kind of cosmic force, you know, maybe some equal opposite perhaps in your mind to the devil, the yin and the yang thing. Now, he is not, right? I mean, you and me, we know that the devil is a created angelic class. He is limited. He's finite as to where God is infinite, all all powerful, all knowing, all the things. He's the creator. Satan's been created. But if in your mind it's always just been kind of like, well, you know, God's the good guy, devil's the bad guy, they're just kind of equal, then you don't know Jesus Christ, Okay? Jesus said there will be many who stand before him on that day. And they're boasting of all the things they did. They're trying to create a case for why he should let them in and all that. But he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. That's what it's all about. Knowing Jesus. What is it that's between you and Jesus, right? The Bible calls it sin. Um, We need forgiveness. We need to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Okay? So knowing Jesus. Verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day 
that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam, Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. And he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now that doesn't, guys, that doesn't mean the earth is flat, okay? He's talking the north, south, east, and west. It's all he's like the four points of a compass from all over the earth. But here we notice that the glory of the reign of the Messiah isn't only for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. He will draw all peoples to himself, and the, his resting place, we read, shall be glorious. Now, in verses 11 and 12, we see the final gathering of the dispersed, a time when all of the land that God... You remember, God made a promise to Abraham... And he made it in, in, to, to, to David, to, Mo, to the covenant of Moses, all the land that would be given to the children of Israel. Well, God's going to keep his promise, guys. He keeps his word. And this is a time when all of the land that God has promised to Israel will be fully occupied. He will draw them in from all over the globe. Jesus will set up a superhighway of sorts and make a way for all of Israel to obtain their inheritance. And second Exodus, if you will, okay? Now, uh, in verse 13, and we'll read through the end of the chapter here, also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. And Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east, and they shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams. Notice, and make men cross over dry shod, and there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left in Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt, right? The second Exodus is making a way. A couple of things here, guys, and we're done, okay? At the time Isaiah is writing this, let's recall that Israel had been divided into Two kingdoms. You had Israel, or as we read here, I, I've mentioned to you guys a couple of times, sometimes referred to as Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest, most influential tribe in the north, and so sometimes called Ephraim. And then you had Judah in the south. But when Messiah reigns, how many of you realize that God is a God of restoration and reconciliation? Okay? Uh, there will be restoration. There will be reconciliation, a great harmony and unity and ultimate victory over their enemies. Now, don't be confused thinking that this section regarding the conquering of their enemies is contradictory to the peace that he's promised. No, it's the prerequisite for the peace that he's promised. Christ will deal with his enemies as he establishes his rule over the earth. And finally, we note that Jesus will remove any obstacle, okay, that would prevent his people from coming home. Don't you love that? He makes a way 
where there is no way. He, he levels every high place, fills every low valley, whatever it takes, dries up the rivers, you see. Anything that would stand between Jesus and his own will be removed. What's the take home for us? Well, if you want to come home, you want to find your way to the table, well, God has removed every obstacle in Christ. It's in him that we have direct, unobstructed access to the Father. God has made a way through Jesus Christ where there was no way. And so can I just encourage you, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. Amen? All right. Father, as we consider your word today and uh, look at the world around us. Our heart cries out, even so, come Lord Jesus. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I just pray that it would start in us. I pray that you would open our understanding that we might comprehend your word, that we might be doers of your word, that we might take action based upon our understanding of your word. That you, you would take root in my heart, that you would come and find your home in my heart. That you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit. Because I want to lead my life for you from this day forward. Thanks for putting my name in your book of life. Look, the Bible tells us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so if your heart's turning to him, you're believing upon him. The Bible's clear that old things pass away, all things are made new. You're a new creature, a new creation. Uh, old things have passed away. All things are new. You're leaving here new. Rejoice in that. Receive that. Be blessed by that. Father, we thank you again just for your goodness and for your faithfulness to us. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Why don't we rise to our feet?